When you're a kid, how you have bad experiences of like public humiliation. Well, I had a lot of bad public experiences of humiliation. I remember one time pulling like a bottle of soda water down in Woolworths in Bonnie Rig out here and the whole bottle, like 20 bottles just fell down off the shelf and, and other people were picking them up and stuff and I was just sneaking away, right? But when I was in year 12, I had a public period of humiliation at the hands of my uh, modern history and extension history teacher. See, I was doing uh, the HSC in year 12, and it was our trial HSC exam. They call it a trial, but it's not really a trial. It's like an actual exam that you've got to do, which the marks help you in your HSC. But I was doing the yearly exam for business studies, and everybody, all the students and my colleagues had gathered around and we assembled to begin our papers and, you know, how you're nervous before you do an exam and the like, and I decided I'll just flick around and start talking to my friend Richard who was sitting behind me and I turned around and was making small talk and then all of a sudden in the period of my small talk I started to complain to him. I started to grumble about the ancient history paper which was to be the next day because our ancient history teacher actually wasn't available that day and she was away on annual leave or something so I was grumbling to him I was like you know the nerve of this woman to take a day of annual leave knowing that we have our trial exam tomorrow what if I have to ask a question of her and she is not here and you're probably thinking in high school what was Jason like in high school well I was like many of you in high school where a lot of the times my academic results were led by the spirit you know, where if the spirit compelled me to hand in a paper, I would hand in the paper. You know, others of you were Pharisees when you were at school. You were stuck to the law, like 100%. But I was grumbling about the fact that she was away. And suddenly, my friend, for some reason, gestured his hand to our extension history teacher saying, you know, why don't you ask her? And my extension history teacher, who was Greek, by the way, decides that this is the time that she is going to give her Gettysburg address to the, all the people. She gets up and in front of all of my classmates and peers and says, Jason would never do that. He would never come to me to ask a question. He's too arrogant for that. He's, it would be beneath him to come to me and ask a question. He's so arrogant that he just would not stoop to that level to come to me, an ancient history teacher, and ask a question because he's that arrogant. And she says this in front of all of my classmates. In front of all of my classmates. So now when you know I have emotional problems, you know why. <laughs> you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out all of his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Today, as we continue our series in the book of Malachi, Malachi is a very, very short book. It's the final book of the Old Testament. If you haven't read it, go home and read it today. It'll take you like 10 minutes. It is a fantastic book. As we continue our series in Malachi, looking at God's preparation for the harvest... We know that obviously in the Old Testament times, people were predominantly an agricultural-based society. The whole economy was reliant on agriculture. If you had a series of droughts or bushfires like we're going through, that affected every person in the community. The ripple effects 
led to famine, disease, and great death. So the harvest was a critical period of the year. It was a period in which people would go out and celebrate as they reaped in the wheat, as they collected the grains, as they collected the fruits. And it was a big time of communal celebration because it literally meant that for another year, people wouldn't starve. And obviously, they were essentially reliant on God to send the rain. In ancient Egypt, if the Nile didn't flood, it would lead to years of famine like we see in the book of Genesis. The harvest time was a period of celebration. But the people in Malachi's day held out a period where they knew there would be a great celebration, a great spiritual harvest. Every year when they celebrated the literal harvest, the physical harvest on earth, they held out hope that God would do a great spiritual harvest in which He would reconcile His people to themselves after centuries of oppression. And this is where this biblical metaphor of the harvest came from. But it's important that we note today as Christians, when we speak about the harvest, that we know that sometimes for God to prepare our hearts for the harvest, He must take us through a period of drought spiritually sometimes. He must take us through the famine. Remember that when Jesus opened the eyes of the blind for them to experience their harvest of spiritual sight, they had to go through a season of actual blindness. When Jesus cleansed the leper and gave them the great spiritual harvest of being disease-free, those people still had to go through a period of being lepers. And in the book of Malachi, as God brings six grievances before His people, for God to prepare their heart for the harvest to come, He has to take them through a great period of pain. And just like for myself, in that, his, in that business studies exam, when my teacher held up my arrogance before the people and held it up for public shame, God has to hold His people up here and expose their arrogance in order for Him to take them through the harvest. Do you follow? God at times, as He prepares your spiritual heart and my heart, for the season to come, sometimes He has to hold us up and hold us accountable to our arrogance. And these people, these Israelites, who for centuries had gone through oppression and exile as a result of what their forefathers and mothers had done in sinning against the Lord, had come back to the promised land. They had come back, a new generation of them. And as they built their temple as they rebuilt their lives, another generation, the children who hadn't grown up experiencing the same suffering and the same torment, were very tempted in life to be arrogant because they didn't go through the same prosperity and hardship. They didn't go through the same hardship as their parents. They became arrogant. And God holds them accountable to their arrogance. And you know, sometimes publicly how a celebrity or a politician will make a stand say something on Facebook and everybody rallies in the comment section and agrees with them. That's what's happened in the book of Malachi. There have been key leaders who have gone out and said how it's worthless, it's futile to serve God. And the people have rallied behind these great speakers and God has now brought them to account to the prophet Malachi. The prophet Malachi is probably the most relevant book of the Old Testament to us today. Because the people in Malachi's generation who God brought to account for their arrogance 
are the closest things that we have to our own lives today. We're in similar positions. And I just want to say a couple of things to you today. As we talk about the power of our words and the importance that our words have in our preparation for the harvest, I want to say a couple of things. The first thing is this. Your words reveal the contempt found in your heart. Your words reveal the contempt found in your heart. When we speak about a person who's arrogant or conceited, we're talking about a person who has an inflated ego. They are the center of the world. The universe revolves around that person. We must point out something really powerful here in God's criticism of his people. When he says, you have spoken arrogantly against me, he uses a unique word. The same word is used to describe the heart of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. You know when God said that Pharaoh had a hard heart? That is the same word that God now uses of his own people. When God calls the people arrogant, this is the same arrogance that he declared Sodom and Gomorrah were were guilty of in the Old Testament. So what's God saying to his people? You have become like Pharaoh was towards me, like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were like towards me. That's how you have become. He could have said to them, you have spoken with a hard heart against me. That's what he could have said to them. How can a people be so bitter in their words towards God that their heart becomes so hard that they actually become like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? But the truth is, the truth is, just like the religious teachers in the days of Jesus when they rallied the people against Jesus and called for Pilate to crucify him, that's what the people in Malachi's day have done. They have rallied the people with such an arrogant spirit that they have become contemptuous. They have begun to detest God himself and have spoken words of arrogance with a hard heart against him. And the truth is that every single one of us becomes arrogant at times before God, do we not? Every single one of us at times hardens our heart towards God, just like the people in the Old Testament did, just like people in Jesus' day did. The words of arrogance that you and I speak against God, against in our prayers and in our actions, all come from the hardness of heart that we have inside of us. Maybe your hardened heart is a spirit of sexual sin. Maybe you've, you've fooled yourself and your spirit into believing that your body is your own possession and it doesn't belong to the Lord so you can live as corrupt of a life as you want. Maybe you've been arrogant in your finances towards God, building up your own material possessions rather than investing in the kingdom of God. That is arrogance. Maybe you've become arrogant towards God in the way that you have prioritized advancement in your career. You've, you've made all your time about yourself rather than service to God. Maybe you become arrogant in spirit through a relationship that you have prioritized over God. Maybe you've said to God at times, my relationship with this particular person who is not right for me is a relationship that I will prioritize over you. But the Bible, time and time again, warns us against arrogance. It warns us against pride. 
Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the rich or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction, is the famous proverb. Even the great King Nebuchadnezzar, with all of his arrogance, with all of his boast, building a statue in honor of himself, God brought his arrogance down. And Daniel says, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Maybe our hearts have become so arrogant that we are now speaking evil against God through our words and in our actions. As much as we talk about the humility Christians are supposed to exemplify, the truth is this, Christians are as or have the propensity to be as arrogant as every other person in the world. Christians can harden their heart towards God just like everybody else can. Christians in this room, on this stage, we can be the most angry, the most violent, the most abusive, the most controlling, the most greedy people of all people. We can possess the same arrogance, the same hardness of heart that God's people, even in the Old Testament, did. Maybe your arrogance has become against even the church of God, where you say, I'm not, I don't need to be here, I don't need to be serving God in this capacity. Maybe your arrogance has manifested in the way that you have neglected your calling to be a servant of God, first and foremost. The second thing is this, we have to understand the consequences of our bitter words. We have to understand the consequences of our bitter words. We, as humans, are a unique species. We, as humans, are the only ones who deliberately hurt other people. Look at it this way. When a lion wants to feed, the lion is just doing what is instinctive to the lion. The lion will kill and the lion will eat. The lion won't keep on killing and not eat. It'll kill one thing, eat that, and then as it needs to, it'll kill the next thing. It won't keep on deliberately feeding. It won't keep on deliberately killing things even though it has enough to eat. Whereas we as humans are the only ones, the only species who seem to deliberately hurt other people with our vicious words, don't we? We know at times that there is a line which we ought not to cross in the things that we say to other people. But yet we cross those things time and time again. Parents, you know there are times things that you shouldn't cross with the way that you, you can victimize your children. But yet you still cross it. Children, you know sometimes there are things that your parents don't want you to do and there are lines that they put for your benefit. But yet you deliberately cross those lines. You deliberately become bitter in your anger. Sometimes there are family, friends and relatives who we have not spoken to in years because we know that we said something deliberately which crossed the line. Our bitter words have consequences, don't they? And I want you to draw very close attention to the words, the bitter words that God's people say to God in their arrogance. They say, 
it is futile. It is futile to serve God. It is futile to serve God. That word futile means literally nothingness. Nothingness. What these people are saying to God is that serving you is as if serving, we are serving nothing. As if we're serving nothing. When God told his people in the Old Testament, do not worship false gods, they, it is futile. He was saying to them, when you serve idols, you're serving nothing. And these people turn that very same criticism on God and say, serving you is like serving idols. That's what they're saying to God. Serving you is the same as serving idols. Do you know how people used to serve idols in God's day, in Jesus' day? Some of them used to sacrifice children to their idols. Some of them would sleep with temporal prostitutions out of devotion. And you know what the people of God are saying to him today? They're saying, serving you is the same as sleeping with temporal prostitutes. Serving you is the same as sacrificing our children to false gods. That's what they're saying about God. Can you see the bitterness in these people's voice? to actually compare their relationship with the living God who called them out of Egypt to serving idols. Can you believe that? Can you see the bitterness? Could you imagine the bitterness sometimes the way that we speak to God? The evil and the intent in our hearts sometimes. That's what these people are saying. They're saying, it is as if we are serving nothing when we serve you. And you and I demonstrate sometimes the same bitterness to our family and friends. At Christmas time, how often do we come across people who have been estranged from brothers or sisters because they just don't want to deal with all the hardship and all the things that they've said in the past? Friends, if you've come here this morning and you're estranged from a loved one and you've been estranged for decades, years, however long, now is the time to put your bitter words behind you, to love that person as Christ loved them, to reconcile with them, to put right what was made wrong by your bitter words. Now you might think, no, I shouldn't be the one to take the first step. That person should come to me. They said this, this, and this about me. What did Jesus say? The Bible says, whilst we were sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were speaking bitter words, whilst we were arrogant towards God, he still died for us. Friends, that is the calling of the Christian life. Yes, we all cross the line sometimes. We all cross the line. We say evil things to people. We say to them like the people of God said to him that it is futile to be in relationship with you. You are nothing to me. You are dead to me. That's what we say to people. We cross the line. We speak bitter words. But now is the time to put that right. Do you really want to see that person on their deathbed and think, I never put that right because of my arrogance? And friends, let me say this to you. This is true for you. This is true for me. If you live with conflict in your life, and no matter who you have in your life, you have conflict with them, I'm going to give you an honest piece of advice, and I have to take this as well. It isn't them, it's you. It's not them who has the problem, it's you. If you live conflict with every people, and no matter who you are in contact with, it blows up and things happen, it's because of the arrogant spirit inside your heart. But these people so detested God that they were so bitter and arrogant towards him that they actually said, it is like serving idols to follow you. 
God could have taken a step back and said, how dare you, you've crossed the line, I'm never talking to you again, I've had enough of you. But what did he do? He actually came into the world to die for those very same people. That's what he did. We have to understand the power of our bitter words sometimes. We have to understand how they can harm other people. And even men and women, we have to understand how our bitter words, because there are some men who will cross the line and fall into territory where they start abusing their partner and they cross a line. But then women, you know, sometimes you also cross the line in the way that you treat each other. Be very vindictive, gossip. We have to understand the power of our bitter words sometimes. But you know where the true bitterness and the true arrogance comes from? It comes from a spirit of thinking that no matter what God actually does for us, He needs to do more. We are the center of the universe. We are the king of the universe. And God keeps on having to give and give and give and give and give to us. And if He doesn't give and give and give to us, we will spit out bitter words against Him. If you watch the news this week, you'll know that there was a father who posted on Twitter a picture of his daughter's, 11-year-old daughter's Christmas list. And on this Christmas list, it had 11 items. Now, I didn't list all of these items. I'm just going to list some of them for you. These are the things that an 11-year-old daughter asked for of her father. iPhone 11. Why are you laughing? What's funny about that? Like, I mean, what child has not come to their parent and asked for an iPhone 11? You know? What person has not come to their boss who might be sitting in this room and asked for an iPhone 11 for Christmas? <laughs> AirPods. New MacBook Air. A bunny rabbit. Now, when I first heard a bunny rabbit, I thought it was like some sort of new technolo technological device, which I had no idea. She actually meant a bunny rabbit, right? Because she later on in the list asked for clothes for the bunny rabbit. So unless you're planning on dressing your new bunny rabbit pro in some sort of clothing, she was actually asking for a bunny rabbit. She asked for clothes. She asked for makeup. She asked for Gucci slides. They are, I didn't know what that was, but I Googled them. They're thong. They're like slippers. She asked for Puma shoes. She asked for perfume, because an 11-year-old needs to be wearing Versace perfume, which she spelled perfume wrong, by the way, as well. Don't you love it when teenagers spell things wrong, even though they have autocorrect? She asked for essential oils. I have no idea what essential oils are. I once went into the store, asked for sunscreen, and the lady sold me exfoliator. It's still sitting in my drawer. I did exfoliate once, and it was before preaching today. Do you notice the difference? <laughs> she asked for jewellery. Jewellery was spelt wrong. She asked for a GoPro. She asked for checkered vans, which, is, which are shoes. She asked for a bunch of these things called LOL dolls. You get them from Big W, I don't know. Check this out. She asked for pink duct tape. Pink duct tape. And then she asked for $4,000 of cash. <laughs> you make the connections. She's going to flee with her bunny and her essential oils with $4,000 of cash. But here's the funny thing. You and I are that girl. We make big lists of things that we want God to do for us. God, I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. And even if God gave those things to us, in our arrogant spirit, we would still turn around to God and say, God, that is not good enough. 
That is not good enough. We want more. We want more, 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 more in our arrogant spirit. Sorry? We want more from God. That's where our arrogance comes from. Imagine how much pain God must have felt when after giving his people all of the blessings that he had given them, giving them an opportunity to be in relationship with him, they still turned around to him and said, it's nothing to serve you, with bitter words. Imagine the pain in the heart of God when he had to go to the prophet Zechariah and say, tell my people, if they don't want to be in relationship with me anymore, give me my 30 pieces of silver and send me on my way. We can be like that toward God. We can neglect to love God faithfully and speak bitter words of complaint and grumbling towards Him and say metaphorically to God, God, we don't want you anymore. Here's your 30 pieces of silver. Go on your way. Go on your way. Jesus could have been the most arrogant person on the planet. He was the only person who lived a morally perfect life. Yet, He did not hold that up to the world and say, look at how good I am. Give me everything I ever wanted. Give me everything I want. I'm morally perfect. I never say any bitter words against anybody. I've got a perfect relationship with my mum. My relationship with her was so perfect that she was a virgin when I was born. I've got perfect brothers and sisters. He could have held up all of his esteem and said, look at how great I am. God, I'm going to demand so much of you, God, because of how great I am. But yet he did not do that. He did not speak bitter words against God like his people were speaking against them. That is our challenge. That is our challenge to imitate the life of Jesus in the way that we actually accept everything God has done for us. And as I've said before, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is not good enough for you, if you and I are so arrogant in our life that the death and resurrection of God is not good enough of a gift of salvation for us. Nothing God gives us will ever be good enough for us in life. Nothing, if we're that arrogant. Can I close with this story? I think it would be appropriate to close with this story because the book of Malachi, as I said, the generation living in Malachi's day are the closest thing that we have to ourselves. The closest thing we have to ourselves. Now more than ever, now more than ever, there is a call on God's people for the harvest to happen, to practice the great proverb that Solomon gave his people, righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation. For God's people to be prepared for the harvest in the book of Malachi, for them to be the ones who God was going to send that great messenger, John the Baptist, who would be the, the forerunner for Jesus, they needed to understand righteousness exalts a nation. You see, God didn't just say to the prophet Malachi, yell at these people, tell them how dare you be arrogant. No, no, no. He told Malachi to bring them back to me because I am preparing them for the harvest that is to come. Call them back to that great proverb, righteousness exalts a nation. And now more than ever, we need to practice that mantra, righteousness exalts a nation. Israel Folau made a mistake last week when he criticized and blamed God for burning people's houses down. No, 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 no. All of us are responsible for the bushfires happening. We're all people who have turned against God. All of us, every single one of us. 
We did not put in place proper policy on backburning and hazard reductions. That's why our, our bushfires have been worse this year. We are all responsible for the evils done in our society, moral evils. We are all responsible for it. All of us play a part. All of us have been arrogant towards God. We are all like the people in Malachi's day, and we need to practice righteousness. Because righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness will exalt the church of God. If we are righteous in our finances towards God, if we are righteous in our time towards giving to God, He will exalt our church and all the churches in Australia for the harvest that is to come. And if now you believe that we shouldn't have to worry about these things, let me tell you a story that's going to help us to understand how important it is now for us. Recently, when we went to the conference in Dallas, I attended a workshop in which they were talking about how diverse churches need to interact with people, with men and women from the LGBTQI community. And you would think a conference in the dirty south of America was the place where it's Bible-believing, thumping, that these guys are all going to practice you know, perfect marriages. But in that room, sitting in that conference, sitting in that workshop, were people with same-sex attraction. People working in churches of same-sex attraction. And they were sharing their stories and sharing about how the church had harmed them, how the church had hurt them. And there was a guy, and I will never forget this, he was telling a story about how the church ostracized him and neglected him and excluded him when he came out as being gay. And I stood up in the room and I said to him, I said, I'm sorry that the church has done that to you. In front of everybody, I said, I'm sorry that the church has done that to you. And after the workshop, I went and I was praying with him. And he took me by the hands. And I said to him, I do believe that you're living in a life of sin. But you are still a child of God and I want to pray for you. And he prayed for me and I prayed for him. We have a very difficult job on our hands. We have a very difficult job on our hands. We have to reach the hearts and minds of millennials for the gospel of God. We have to reach a generation of people who are turning against God and want nothing to do with God. Malachi, friends, was in that same position. He had to reach a generation of people who didn't think the same way. They didn't think traditionally. They had turned against God. They were arrogant towards God. And Malachi had to call a generation of people to stand up for what was right. Authentic relationship with God based on love but also based on righteousness. Friends, we have the hard job of doing that. Our church has to confront these questions at some point. We have to confront these questions. How are we going to call a generation of millennials, people who, who want nothing to do with church, people who want nothing to do with the gospel, how are we going to call them back? Friends, we're going to call them back by practicing righteousness, just like Jesus did. If you're from a previous generation and you're not a millennial, I want to say something to you, and honestly, as we prepare for the harvest, your generation gave us the resurrection of Jesus back. You reclaimed the importance of the resurrection of Jesus as a central tenet of the Christian faith. I, as a young person today, can go to any church, I can go into any workplace, I can go into any academic college and publicly say that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus and here are my evidential reasons, here's why I believe it. Your generation gave us the resurrection of Jesus back. 
Our generation now has to take what you have given us back and we need to take that message back to the new people, the new generation, the new generation that needs it. That's what Malachi was doing to prepare his people for the harvest. Now more than ever, our generation must go back to doing what Jesus did better than anybody else and that is eating at the fellowship, the same table as sinners. If we're going to Claim the, reclaim the world for Christ. Reach a generation of young people, your teenagers, your people, your, your, your children. If we are going to reach them, now more than ever, we have to get back to the table of fellowship with them. We are the generation Malachi was speaking to. We are that generation who have spoken arrogantly against the Lord. But now more than ever is the time. Now more than ever is the time for our nation to practice righteousness. Father, I thank you so much, Lord Jesus.